Do we need ethics in AI? If recent news has anything to say about it, companies and corporations have found their ethics departments so troubling that they've shut them down, firing whole teams of people whose job it was to point out all the ways the companies were doing wrong. It seems that when the bottom line might be affected, the no-sayers are the first to go. Where mandates about not being evil used to be embedded in company code, these corporations have realized how much more money can be made, power to be had, when the guidelines for conduct are murkier, when they can move fast and break things, consequences be damned. In fact, it could be said that the Silicon Valley ethical murkiness was part of its glamour and sex appeal to begin with. They buried the ethics under the banal, overloading users with massive, drawn-out statements that bored us into submission. The philosopher Hannah Arendt, writing about the trial of Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi bureaucrat, famously critiqued the trial as a representation of how systematic evil could hide itself within the banal. If you had enough layers of code, red tape and bureaucracy, daily atrocities could occur in the everyday with little notice. Judith Butler articulates this as the way that crimes and criminality can be so easily accepted, routinized, and implemented without moral revulsion and political indignation and resistance. For Arendt and Butler, the horror is not about the intentionality to do harm or its rationality and reasons, but that a new mode of thinking is arising, a thinking subsumed by dullness, routinization, and palatable by virtue of its waffling between obviously simple and debilitatingly complex. When it comes to AI, the problems are the same. The complexity of the digital structures and the tech-speak of programmers and developers can cloud over the inner workings of projects. According to a recent article in Vice magazine, scientists themselves are even having a hard time explaining how their AI projects actually work. The need for voices of clarity and resistance have never been greater. In this episode of the Digital Cancer Twin Podcast, we speak with Dr. Sharde Masranjan about how scholars of the humanities can participate in an interdisciplinary ethics of AI research. The role of the humanist scholar is to contribute to and critique pop culture, which would have us imagine AI and its sentience taking over the world or cracking jokes at our expense. However, as we've discovered in our time on this project, computer scientists are far more likely to explain AI simply as math. A lot of math. Very fast math. So despite the apocalyptic imagery of AI, or the seeming black box of its construction, it turns out the true horror lies not in the banality of its evil, but its simplicity. And the ethical response? Rather than letting information overload bore us into submission, we can look carefully to curate data, AI, and the problems that arise into proper relationships. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, we're lucky today to have the, the wonderful and brilliant Dr. Sharday Mazunjan joining us to talk about religion, AI, and information in a whole series of uh, interesting philosophical topics. Uh, Dr. Mazunjan, uh, can I refer to you as Sharday? You may. Okay. Sharday, uh, so can you explain uh, some of your, your research approach or, or how you think in a, uh, and approach these conversations? I approach them philosophically. There's some philosophical anthropology in there. Nice. I am usually 
speaking through art objects. Mm. That's how I wrote my first book. It's how I mean to go on. It's how I do a lot of my thinking about these abstract kinds of topics is by thinking through art objects or by treating technical objects like we would an art object. So thinking about its formal properties and um, its sensory qualities and things like that. So that's that's my major way of making some of these very theoretical things grounded. And that's part of what attracted me to this collaboration was actually that being on a team with people who were making an AI meant that I could observe the building of that. Which is rare. Thing. Yeah, I mean, we don't. It, it, for those of us in the humanities, we rarely get to see kind of through the the looking glass into these like highly technical labs where they're actually making things. Our, we're mostly caught up in our heads. Well, I think that's an unfair caricature of us. But uh, <laughs> I, I get caught up in yourself. my head. I get caught up in my head. Yeah. <laughs> but it is, uh, it is a a privilege and. Uh, and a great opportunity. And if we don't have this kind of opportunity, then things that we can do are things like speak through maybe popular media representations of AI. And, uh, you know, hence we get a lot of really cool work on stuff like Terminator and Blade Runner. But in this case, it seemed like an opportunity to think through one of those things that isn't usually front and center and present yeah. in our daily experience because this is the type of tool that is integrated in medical practice so that as a patient, if you are unfortunate enough to find yourself in that context, you might not be aware that it was operating in your framework of care. That's, man, that's super interesting because, I mean, I mean you're right. I mean, I think so often folks get caught up with these pop culture versions of of any advanced technology and and ai specifically in some sense ai has probably been more in our collective imagination than than other advanced tech like like vr or drones or flying cars or any of this stuff like this ai idea this idea of creating an artificial intelligence an artificial person has been kind of a, a stoker of fear and excitement for a few decades now but that's not that's not in some sense, really what's happening. It's like it's there's kind of a smoke and mirrors thing happening where people are like constantly worried about this thing that's that's most likely a long way off. And yet they're missing the ways that this tech is already kind of imbued in our daily lives. As you mentioned that there's, the, I mean, some of these folks and some of these people are encountering AI in their medical procedures already. This is something that we talked about in, in the last podcast with uh, 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 Dr. James and thinking, yeah, like that most of the time people just are completely unaware of almost how boring this tech is, which seems to kind of align with your own work. <laughs> yeah, boredom, um, getting interested in boredom, that whole suite of jokes. And yeah, that that's another part of the appeal to working on this team is like the work of Lana Jane's pointing out these things that are behind the scenes that have material implications mm -hmm. for real people. Um, and I mean, your own work, 
looking at the types of reality augmenting uh, sort of digital interventions into our lives that you know we don't perceive necessarily in terms of AI. We just kind mm -hmm. of think of them as as digital, or we just think yeah. of them as you know, well, that's video games or, yeah. or whatever the case is. But you know, video games are probably, I think, still the most. Um, or maybe if you could broaden that to. I'm sure smartphones would really be the thing, the the most prevalent form of most just like mundane low AI. level, yeah, yeah, yeah artificial, yeah. narrow intelligence yeah. in our daily lives. Um, yeah, and putting putting all of those things within this frame, so the the realities for algorithmized healthcare in the context of uh, race medicine that Lana James is working on, and the the type of artificial narrow intelligence that your work centers on and Dr. Amber Simpson's actually building of this particular AI in the form of the digital cancer twin. And then my approach with my first book, The Boredom Book, on kind of algorithmic culture mm -hmm. and, and the present computational condition and how that as, a, as an ethos, as an atmosphere impinges on us in this way that we don't encounter it, I think, as encountering AI, but we are living in this algorithmic present that, that saturates us, yeah. that overloads us yeah. with information. And that creates a certain type of affective atmosphere. And, um, and it's not pleasant. <laughs> it's one that it, it colonizes our interiority and makes us sort of want to withdraw from that bombardment. But mm -hmm. all we can withdraw into is an interiority that is colonized by the same and that's really not much of a haven and i mean th that's i mean most most folks kind of walk around in their daily lives i mean all of all of us do all of us walk around in our daily lives constantly imbued by signals and information trying to catch our our eyes everywhere so all of us are kind of wrestling this resistance with overload information and overload culture and yet here we are as humanities scholars who are supposed to be like theoretically kind of more vigilant about these things and kind of looking for it. We've been brought on to this digital cancer twin project to kind of bring eyes to bear on the creation of a thing. And I and I know you and I have had conversations about this in the past as kind of our role on the team that so much of, of, of how this tech is being created is in some sense still beyond us because this is not our discipline. This is not our field. We're not actually involved in the the coding or the programming of of these algorithms of this this uh, this machinic technology, and then when we try to read, it's a completely different language. It's a it's a completely different set of scholarship. So then we're we're like double overloaded, uh, in that even the stuff we're reading and kind of paying attention to is kind of creating a type of resistance. I remember I think what was the conversation we had about. It was one of the the comp sci terms about. It was about forests. Or forests. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Trees and. That's right. And so, like, yeah, I mean, computer scientists or folks in 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 data and AI who who are listening to this right now, they're like, oh yeah, they're talking about this forest thing, and we're like, what? It's arboreal, arboreal lines of thinking. What yeah, are we that talking about? Ar arborescent metaphors. Right. See, I remember yeah. reading an anthropology paper on that in my undergraduate yeah. degree. Yeah, th these terms of art are completely different and trying to translate between disciplines changes the noise to signal ratio mm -hmm. for sure and actually i mean interdisciplinarity has been this buzzword for a long time mm -hmm. it seems now like it's been a long time but how to actually do that when it's 
um, I've been thinking that can be a misleading term because interdisciplinary might mean something like philosophy and religious studies. And we're dealing with two different disciplines in the sense that they've both got university departments with distinct faculty, distinct canons of literature, methods, founding figures, <laughs> myths, <Yeah. laughs> research traditions, um, maybe pedagogical styles, you know, all, their own set of societies and conferences and journals, all of these things. And that could be interdisciplinary. But having a research team composed of somebody who happens to have gotten a job in a philosophy department and somebody who happens to have gotten a job in a religious studies department, which, you know, depending on the applications and the job calls could have just been easily reversed in some cases. Mm -hmm. That's a completely different thing than getting some humanists and some computer scientists together yeah. on a team. Yeah. That's It's not intersectoral, but I think it's something like interdomain. I mean, in Canada, at least based on the CIHR, uh, Canadian Institute for Health Research, and um, NSERC, Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada, and SHRC, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, designations, it's it's inter-research council, mm. uh, which is precisely what the grant that is supporting this research team was meant to do. It it needed to be comprised of people that would span at least two of those research councils. But that's not that's sort of an insider insider Canadian term. Uh, you know, inter inter research council isn't quite as musical as interdisciplinary. That's right. But my point is, it's tricky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, so I, I think about this too. So, I mean, interdisciplinary work can can happen in accident where all of a sudden you might have like a computer scientist who happens to be talking to like a historian and then they're like, oh, there's cool shared thing. Like, let's talk more about that. And then you have kind of a cool thing develop. But how how the DCT project came about, it was, it, it was like trying to preempt these types of conversations. It didn't start from like, hey, we've got the shared question, the shared research interest, let's let's follow it along. It was like, what happens? So, well, not just what happens, but it's like, we have this thing that's happening. We need more voices on it. Let's throw all these voices in a room and see if they can make a song. And that's kind of a struggle here, right? That's kind of what you're pointing out, that there, when when you when you have these different voices, if there's not kind of a shared lineage, all of a sudden that one of the first steps is figuring out how do you even talk to each other? How do you develop a language? I think about that, the sci-fi movie Arrival, where, I mean, not, <laughs> not to say that we're completely different alien species from, from different departments, but to, to some degree, there is an aspect of that, right? Like, wh what's the shared language? What are the shared symbols? What are the shared questions? And that takes work to do if you haven't already done it. It's almost kind of hard to force. It's hard to, to process through. Yeah, that that's that's a real question in terms of interdisciplinary research methods. Where are you meeting? And one of the things that I've thought about in the course of working on this project is that had we had a shared research question but different disciplinary methods that mm. we were going to use to kind of get at different angles of this. Yeah. You know, we were sort of like taking pictures from different angles of the same object. That would have been one thing. Or if if I had a research question, which was, say, experimental in nature, and my co-PI had access to the tools 
Like, for instance, say I had some sort of intuition um, based on my readings about uh, the way that some kind of a, a brain state that was active during an experience um, interacting with an AI versus interacting with some other sort of uh, imaginary entity or something like that. And I went and I found a co-PI who did fMRI research. Then I would have a question and they would have... The means to answer. Yeah. Yeah. But in this case, Amber and I both had a set of interests that, yeah. that overlapped. But then in terms of our actual disciplinary working methods, it resulted in a type of collaboration that was, I don't quite know how to put it. It, it Experimental. Well, no, not experimental in okay. the sense that we didn't have an experiment. Or not, yeah, not that we were running. Exper that's right. Yeah, no experimental in the sense like we don't know. It's like we're <laughs> they're throwing these ingredients together to yeah. see what will happen. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And I, I, so I mean, on this line of of shared research questions and things like that, like on on the one hand, we're come like we we came into this and there's already there's already an answer. Like there's a thing being made, and so rather than like having these questions, all of a sudden we have this thing that's made and we get to come in with questions. I remember some of the first times trying to describe what I was doing with this project to other people. And I think you had some shared experiences. We'd say like, oh, well, we're, we're helping theorize this uh, project called the Digital Cancer Twin. Um, it's an AI that's going to be doing kind of uh, uh, predictive medicine. And people would ask, you're giving AI cancer? And I'm like, <laughs> well, I mean, maybe, but that's not, that's actually, it's like, it's an interesting question, but it's not an interesting question. It's like, it's, it's interesting in terms of like science fiction and stuff like that, but like not interesting pragmatically because you can't actually do that. And like, that's what we learned. You can't actually give like technology, uh, uh, biological cancer. Right. So it's like, well, no, we're not, we're not actually doing that. But that's like, that's the type of thing that pops into people's heads. And we can't like, I, I, I think we shared it, shared that story with Amber. And she like she's like that's crazy. I never would have thought about that. Her colleagues don't ask her the same question. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, we get very different questions. Uh, but but uh, but on that topic, like that's the type of thing, right? And so it's it, our our work and the type of stuff we do, and even the questions we ask. I think it's so easy to kind of get caught up in those fictionalized questions that that are interesting almost aesthetically. Uh, or in terms of like how they might kind of trigger a feeling or an idea and stuff like that. But they're not necessarily interesting pragmatically. Like asking the question, are we giving AI cancer to these coders, these designers who are basically like, oh, okay, how do I get the numbers to line up so that this image has like three pixels on this side uh, and and not an extra pixel over here? Like asking them about like, oh, are you giving the AI cancer right now? They're like, no, I just put some parentheses into <laughs> my Python programming language. Like those questions don't align. They might be interesting questions, but they're not going to be useful for the, yeah. the the development or even the crafting or, or or thinking through of this project. Yeah, that's that, that's a good point. That's a good example, and it points to well a couple of things. So one, our task ha has been to find out okay what can we do by virtue of being part of the 
team being in dialogue with the people who are actually building this tool mm -hmm. that we couldn't have done mm -hmm. if we had just read about it. That's right. In the press release yeah. that will yeah. eventually come out. And, you know, we just theorized it from afar, mm -hmm. like we would do with an art exhibition mm -hmm. versus being in the artist's studio while they were making it. Mm -hmm. you know, what is the difference there? What can we do that we couldn't have otherwise? But then, funny enough, part of the answer to that might loop back to that anecdote that you just shared, because if we weren't along for the ride <laughs> during the building, then that conversation about building a thing to give it cancer <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> may not have come up. And that conversation does open back onto the thing that a lot of times the, the the work that you know, colleagues of ours in religious studies and philosophy do with respect to AI is tracking popular perceptions and mm -hmm. discourses and narratives yeah. and stories, yeah. representations, movies, et cetera, about, about it. And so the fact that that is what comes up for people mm -hmm. is also our data. That's so interesting. I actually, I mean, so yeah, I mean, we've, we've been part of this team for a year now, but I hadn't quite thought I could, that hasn't been my focus. I've been so internally focused, like what are we doing for the team? What are we doing for this project? But in in some ways, perhaps our role is better suited for looking out, like not looking into what this project, what's going on. I mean, there's there's important ethic work or ethical work that's that needs to be done as 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 Lana is is doing and 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 we're participating in. But then this idea of yeah being outward facing as well. How does how does this work then get translated to popular discourse in order to avoid in some sense these exact type of hiccups? So I mean if this if this AI is going to be released in what I think the current timeline is within the next five years or, or who knows? I don't, I don't want to put any numbers down. I'm not I'm not making any predictions. I'm not putting any timeline on on Amber's uh, project. Please do not hold me to that. It will be done sometime in the future. But we're already having these conversations now because I guess we could imagine once this thing is released, I mean, I'm sure it's not going to have the name Digital Cancer Twin. Like someone in a marketing department is going to come up with a much better name for it. Well, yeah, because that's a digital twin is a term of that's art. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And that's its own kind of philosophical category. But already we're, we're preempting what could have been some of the public fears of, of this AI tool. Like the, like a person kind of enters into the hospital, they have their, their CT scan done, and then they're asked, like, well, hey, would you like this AI to do some predictive medicine to see how your cancer might develop so we can offer better treatments? And a person might be like, wait a minute, are you giving the AI cancer? And then all of a sudden the doctor's like, oh, I don't know. But in some sense, like now we've preempted that question and we could start saying like, no, that's not what's happening here. That's not, that's, and, and maybe that's even just part of kind of shaping the conversation in general, shaping the discourse. And that's kind of what we get to be a part of. Yeah, shaping the conversation at a bunch of different levels because it's not at all clear that a patient would necessarily be asked that question to yeah, begin we, with. That's right. We don't know what questions yet. Yeah, yeah. That's all that's all yet to be determined. Yeah. And and I remember you and Amber talking about that there actually is this element where people who are working with the radiologic scans that are the training data for 
the digital cancer twin do need to be reminded that they they are working with yeah. images of real people's yeah. real bodies. Oh, that's great. Actually, I'm I'm not sure if that appears in our first or second episode. I think that my that anecdote may have hit the cutting room floor. And regardless of whether it did, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm happy to share it again, and I'm glad you brought it up again. There was this, yeah, amazing conversation I had with Amber, where because she's she doesn't come from a medical science background, she's computer science kind of through and through. And then she she met Dr. Richard Doe uh, while at Sloan Kettering, and there she started encountering kind of these images. And at first, yeah, her approach was like these are just images, and how do we get? How do we get this advanced algorithmic technology to properly analyze these images, similar to like what it can do with words? I forget who I was just talking about this. So like, uh, for for folks that are listening, so current kind of AI models like GPT three and soon to be GPT four, they're fantastic with language. They do really a really good job of of analyzing language, interpreting language, and 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 then kind of reproducing uh, uh, human sounding kind of language and sense of phrases and all that. What it's not yet great at is doing the same thing with images. We have lots of AI that can create images based off of language prompts, but it, the AI still can't quite uh, do the, the kind of predictive, recreative, and generative work with uh, kind of actual uh, human Im images in the way that it can with human language. So anyway, so here's Amber uh, trying to figure out, okay, how do we bridge that gap? How do we help AI do this? And so she's looking at thousands and thousands and thousands of images of people's cancer. She's looking at tumors and looking at them kind of develop and looking at them at different timelines. And they're just pictures. They're, they're pixelated pictures with like little lumps. And, and she's trying to figure out like, oh, okay, so this is an important part. Let's have the AI tag this as important and, and, and this shape and blah, 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 blah. And then she, she mention, mentions at one point, it, it took a while, but kind of stepping back and realizing every one of these images is someone's body. Every one of these images is an image of cancer that was in another human's body, and likely that human's not alive anymore. And so she's looking at these images of the past, these images of of uh, of 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 other humans that have that have passed away and, and are no longer there. But she had kind of algorithm or algorithmized that if we're gonna come up with some sort of adjective. And that part of her goal now with her students is to kind of help them see and think about that. That they're not just working with random images here. They're working with these these pictures of 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 human bodies, bodies with cancer, bodies that are probably suffering. And that lets a whole new weight and gravitas to the work. But it's hard to do that when you approach these things as pure information. Yeah, and I wouldn't have thought of that as being part of humanists' work in a team because that, but maybe that is what, mm. maybe that is part of what having ethics yeah. people um, on the team is, is about. Um, and certainly... In the popular discourse, like in the you know reportage on these types of things, in in conversations that that are happening, you know, in in like editorial spaces or whatever the case, um, highlighting, making sure that there is always that toggling back and forth between the the interest in these speculative technologies of mm. what 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 it could do, what could happen, and what data they're actually dependent on and what material effects they're actually 
having. And I mean, this came up recently in a discussion that we had at our big uh, major annual conference, the American Academy of Religion, on an emerging technologies panel. We were talking about the metaverse. And as a respondent on that panel, I was thinking a lot about the fact that some of those papers were picking up on basically the promotional discourse Mm -hmm. of these technologies that were yet to actually be fully realized. And it was, you know, the, the great guys of tech. So to deal in their discourse is to sort of continue their own hype machine about these potential technologies. Mm-hmm. And it also at the same time becomes difficult to say a whole lot about what are the material interventions of these technologies in the world because they don't yet exist or exist in the form that they're being speculated about. Like when this happens in the metaverse, you'll be able to do X, Y, and Z. But if you can't yet, then you can't really falsify (laughs) those assumptions and and predictions and and know, to use a favorite word of yours in your research, if they're gimmicky Mm. or not, if they overpromise and underdeliver or if they actually are able to deliver what they promise. But then um, our friend and colleague Jacob Boss made the excellent point that these technologies do intervene in the world. Material effects do erupt through the discourses around them. So we have to attend to both both how is this particular thing, the digital cancer twin, Mm -hmm. going to affect the particular people that engage with it or that it engages in some way. So Mm -hmm. there'll be some sort of whole chain of healthcare practitioners um, and patients and who interface or don't with each other, like a whole sort of... um, I'm picturing... uh, um, Karen Crawford's Atlas of AI diagrams, oh, you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. the whole sort of big picture of all of these points of from connection. From like the mining <laughs> yeah. areas yeah. to the the transit routes of the the materials to the the, the warehouses. Yeah, every aspect that yeah. goes into the creation of this thing, but we rarely think about that. Yeah. Did I just say... Kate, Kate Crawford. Kate Crawford. Not Karen. Yeah. yeah. Kate Crawford. Apologies. Kate Crawford. Yeah. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm thinking beyond, you know, just circle of care, but then also the kind of greater fears about AI and um, and and what what it can do because people when I mean I I don't the the popular discourses about AI are not about artificial narrow intelligence. Yeah, um, it's not usually people worrying about a particular algorithm. Mm-hmm. embodied in a particular machine body it's usually about this this idea that somehow left alone it self-evolves that's right and becomes something sentient um and uh and makes a pitch <laughs> and somebody believes it and and then the movie starts i guess yeah or um or it it's not quite so polite making a pitch like uh that that program was to the Google engineer who claimed that he was talking with a, a truly self-aware 
artificial intelligence, um, it, it just takes over in the robot overlord or um, scenario. But, uh, but yeah, these things feed back into themselves like we were just talking earlier about that scenario with the Google engineer and the fact that, um, yeah, that, that AI had material consequences for him. He got fired because he decided to go public with his claim that he really, he decided to believe that he was really talking to this, this self-aware AI, but it was in fact an effect of discourse. Like the AI didn't hack into Google's HR system and get him fired. It relied on him being credulous enough or insufficiently skeptical or just willing to publicly stake a claim that was essentially a metaphysical one mm -hmm. and and stand by it. And it and it was so he was realizing this fantasy about yeah. artificial general intelligence in actually creating this situation. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because like again, yeah, I mean we we get caught up the popular discourses like horror, fear, horror, fear. The horrifying thing with that scenario would would have been if he had gotten fired without any like without any recourse and then like come out and started saying, look, I'm only fired because the AI gained sentience and and I I caught it. And like and 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 now it's trying to get me fired and and all the uppers are into it. But then like we hear that we're like, oh, this is a conspiracy theorist here. Like this this dude's office rocker. Uh but like that's what like that that would be the type of realized fear of AI, right? That like it's it's it can do these kind of malicious things. It can do these scary things, uh, and and but that's not what happened. And which also I think speaks to something that we were reading recently, Isabel Miller's psychoanalysis of AI. Um, you know that that malevolence, mm. uh, so not a kind of cold, dispassionate activity, but but a malevolence like the sort of cruelly taking pleasure mm. in messing mm -hmm. with a human. And so in her work, she shifts the question from can AI think to can AI enjoy? Because she's a Lacanian, and so for her brand of psychoanalytic theory, it's all about it's, it's being a sexed subject, which you become when you enter into language, and then your mode of enjoyment in the world broadly, but which has its basis for Lacanian psychoanalysis in sexuation. Mm -hmm. um, but it made me think about something that I, I always cringe a little bit or I, it grates on me somehow that often the word is sentience that people mm. choose because sentience refers to a sensory ability. It doesn't refer primarily to something cognitive. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that is, you know, beyond Miller's book, what people are typically talking about. And actually, that's part of what I found so provocative about her work is that it it does have so much to do with, well, in her case, the figure of the sex bot. So um, the machine body, and thinking back to uh, somebody who has been an inspiration for me, um, Catherine Hales talks about like how did how did the machine lose its body? Like why do we think of algorithms in this abstract theoretical sense? It's always housed materially in some mm -hmm. way, 
And the thing about these, the fears of the robot overlords, um, you know, like the Rocco's Basilisk problem and and stuff like that. We can we can link to some of these discussions in the show notes. There's, yeah, there's tons of interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah fun fun rabbit holes yeah. to jump down um, after you're done listening to this episode. Is is that yeah? Some of them seem like they would require a kind of body of flesh and blood drives and desires in order to motivate some of the things that people are afraid of. Some of them not, yes. like the the paperclip example. Um, I think this is one that you give. Oh, the paperclip game? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, that's a fantastic game. So if folks have never done this, you can search for the paperclip paperclip game and it's it's this very kind of like the basic looking screen that you get on you have like kind of two or three buttons it's not even clear that it's a game but the they're just like hey you've now been put in charge of a paperclip company and go and so every time you click your mouse on like the make a paperclip you do you make a little paperclip but then you have to buy the material to make the paperclip and then you can sell them and and so it just starts off you're just like making all the stuff but then as the game advances you can buy more advanced technology then you can hire a research team to start doing research for you and the and i i mean spoil i'm gonna spoil it so if you don't want spoilers for the game like cover your ears now spoilers by the time you get to the the late stages game uh, stages of the game what you've done is your scientists have created an ai that's going to take do the the work for you and and balance out when to buy materials and when to sell and so on and so forth but then it starts taking literally a life of its own and it turns out once once it's done selling all these paper clips to the world and it needs more materials then it's going to start kind of colonizing the stars and so then you've then all of a sudden what started as like this one little click make a paperclip, make a paperclip, has turned into this AI universe-eating machine uh, that's turning the entire world, uh, the entire universe into its material for making more paperclips. And I think that's a pretty good cognitive example of, of where AI, a fantasy of where AI could run amok because yeah. that's this kind of utilitarian logic taken yeah. to the extreme with no moral kind of intuition providing any checks and balances but it's not about sentience right yeah. that doesn't depend on yeah whether it's self-aware you don't yeah. need a self-aware yeah that, that's okay that's a great point yeah. yeah like you don't need like it's there is a type of intelligence there um but it doesn't need to be self-aware it doesn't need to have like a mission or a goal or a quote-unquote soul this is this is an ai that's been created to to maximally maximally be efficient in its purpose and it does that and those type of ai exist already i mean they just don't have the 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 bodies capable of of consuming the universe yet yeah, and depending on what the machine body is, what different sensory inputs and capacities it has, then its its operations are gonna be different. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and so you know, I I think to bring it back to the digital cancer twin, um, one of the things that I initially got really curious about with it is the way that despite not certainly not being a thing that has a consciousness that is driven <laughs> bottom up by having to run a body and not being any kind of uh you know paperclip overload or <laughs> I always want to say overload because yeah. of my overload boredom book yeah. 
overlord. Overlord, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, in fact, being uh, uh, an artificial narrow intelligence, it does nonetheless have a kind of agency and, and, and an agency that relates to embodiment because it is this sort of digital doppelganger that walks the path of your disease course mm -hmm. with you or ahead of you. It doubles your body so that you've got this digital representation of your body. You've got your your the the body that you experience. Your material sensory sensory body. Yeah. Body, yeah. And um, but the that temporal path, the time course of the digital version of you is if it's accurate, if it's diagnostically accurate, like diagnosis, like dia across, gnosis, knowledge, knowledge across time. If that is, if that is accurate, it, it is, it's sort of pulling you hmm. toward its destination, um, not because it's actually creating that reality, but because it's it's representing it in a way that is maybe so accurate. And I, this isn't wholly different from other medical diagnoses. Of course, just, this is what people are always doing. I want to pause here for, for folks listening. It, it, she, she talked to her, but basically what she's saying is that these, these predictive technologies are not predicting what's going to happen. By the very nature of them thinking through this stuff, they're actually determining the future and that their their predictive models aren't saying oh this could happen like but they're they're materially changing reality in such a way that once you get this diagnosis like your your path towards how this cancer is developed ends up getting determined in a way that you might not want it to so this is i mean for folks who are, are familiar at all with with, with quantum physics and, and schrodinger's cat the idea of like is the cat dead or alive in the box? You only know once you open it. So there's this this kind of Pandora moment of like, if you, as long as you don't know what the digital cancer twin is going to say about how your future cancer is going to develop, it's still undetermined. But once once the AI has made its prediction, your path is is somehow set. Yeah, and that's deeply frightening. It, it, well, you're. I mean, you, <laughs> it, <laughs> that, that's I, your favorite I, emotion to pair with AI. That's right. <laughs> digital uh, technologies. Yeah. I mean, there's joy. There's Listen joy to in his technology other podcasts, too. There's but, joy in technology too. We'll yeah. get to the joyous bit. But, He's always smiling when he says it. And because I mean, and like, and but that's the that's the philosophical nugget here, right? Like yeah. That's something still to be argued. That's right. And yeah. to be clear to listeners, I'm not saying this tool is or will be 100% That's right. correct. In some sense, nothing changes. Yeah. And then in another sense, um, something only changes relative to a medical practice that is already in place. Mm -hmm. But then in yet a third sense, at least, something further changes, at, at least in the sense that people do invest AI that is built using huge data sets with a kind of authority. They do. And so maybe a doctor's kind of analog, um, you know, career of having experience, you know, clinical mm -hmm. 
clinical knowledge and the intuition that arises from that mm -hmm. professional intuition is one thing. But real or imagined, this AI's prediction may be felt differently yeah. by patients and by and by clinicians mm -hmm. as well. Um, yeah, but it, I mean, thinking about some of your work on virtuality, yeah. there is a, a kind of foreclosure of possible futures, right? By yep. having that bear down yeah. on that moment, the diagnostic moment yeah. or prognostic moment. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't going to bring that because, of course, that's what I want to talk about. But <laughs> that's not, I, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's 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 an inverse directionality because I'm I'm interested in 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 the past and how the virtual past is kind of bearing down and, and shaping our present moment. But here there's kind of a determinative aspects, which always make my hackles rise. I, I, I want the future to be open. Yeah, uh, he's not a determinist. <laughs> not at all. I'm I'm fairly worried that this is, in fact, a a deterministic universe, but that yeah. doesn't have anything to do with the DCT in particular. That's what? that's my own existential fear. <laughs> but I mean, that's so again, kind of interesting, interesting thinking about the yeah the role of the humanities on these things. And I think there's been this reoccurring element that I mean, there's there's different approaches humanists can take, uh, and and coupled with kind of different specialties. But one of the modes that that you and I tend to enjoy taking is thinking about how are humans going to receive this? How like how does a human deal with this. So we're not we're not going to theorize AI about whether it's going to it's gaining sentience, it's becoming it's gaining personhood status, blah 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 blah. It 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 matters less about the the actual tech itself to some degree. And more so how how are on the ground humans? How how are those of us who encounter this going to experience this? Um, and I mean for for folks that are interested, we we published a paper earlier this year thinking about AI and robots and spiritual encounters because people are always asking like and this is this happens with VR all the time like oh well hey like oh can I go to church in VR or can I do this religious practice in VR uh, yes of course like all the technology is going to be taken up by religious traditions religious people all across it's uh, it's been happened every time throughout time religions will find a way to make use of this stuff for their purposes that's just that's what they do because religions are uh, made up of humans and humans do that um, and so it's the less interesting question about okay yeah is, is AI going to be involved in religious ceremonies well yeah yes of course it is it already has been and it will be again what's more interesting is okay well how how do humans receive that and 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 why do they receive it that way so we our our paper was looking at the the mindar robot in japan there was a significant amount of folks that were like yeah this this robot priest it was as good as any other human priest i had a, i had a, a a beautiful religious experience at this church because of this ai one that i would have with a human uh, and so and 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 they they call it a priest. They they granted it sentience. They did all that. Whether this robot has it or not doesn't really matter. They experienced it as such. And this is the weird thing about human bodies is that we can experience this stuff as real. Like it, it's in our experience, it feels no different than any other aspect of our, of our reality, whether or not that thing actually has that thing, whether a robot actually has sentience, doesn't really matter because we can experience it having sentience. And in some sense, it says more about us. So it's like, what, yeah, how, how do you as a human, what type of human are you that when you encounter something that, that acts in kindness or, or acts in a way or does things that are, that are human-like, are you going to respond with care? 
are you going to respond as a human? Are you going to kind of have a, a type of what, what might be called a, a hermeneutics of generosity, hermeneutics having to do with the study of philosophy of how do you know things? And so it's like granting a, a type of generous knowing. How do you knowing. interpret things? How do you things? interpret things? Thank you. That's right. How do you interpret things? Thank you. Uh, are you going to be generous in the way that you encounter this? Because it says more about you and it, like, in the ways that you act and respond than it does about that actual thing. Yeah, that's what people are, at least from a, say we're just speaking from a, materialist uh, scientific viewpoint, mm -hmm. and both of those terms have to be here um, for the following to make sense. But that's all we can say that people are doing with their non-robot gods and their avatars anyway. And their encounters with other humans. Yes. Like, <laughs> yeah. show, does, you can go to a, like a, an intro to philosophy course or an intro to theory of mind, and one of the first things you encounter is like, how do you know other humans you encounter actually have minds. Like, yeah, and everybody leaves looking askance at each other. A whole <laughs> Who's sea the zombie of philosophical here? <laughs> zombies. Yeah, it's a real problem for those first few uh, parties. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so I mean, and that's 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 some of the cool stuff that yeah, I guess we get to encounter and we get to to think through on this stuff. Um, but it still again like raises challenges for the larger project. I mean, this thing is in development. In some in some sense, we are we are. I mean, or we want to be careful about prognosticating too much about what this tech is going to do, um, and 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 try to and and be careful about the predictive stuff. But take a look at what's happening now, or what's happened in the past that's uh, kind of shaping what's happening now. Those types of questions. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Oh man, we could we could talk for another hour, but uh, I think we'll we'll wrap it up here. Uh, Dr. Shardae Majanjan, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. It's my pleasure. And uh, uh, yeah, for those who are interested, uh, she just released her book. Uh, oh my goodness, my the title just blanked my mind. It's the spiritual significance of overload boredom. So go out and buy your copy. And if you're interested in all in uh, what you heard today, pay attention to her future work where she's transitioning into psychedelics and altered states of consciousness and mysticism and esotericism and all sorts of other cool topics. I like alternative modes of consciousness. Alternative modes of consciousness. Yeah, That's great. I have my reasons. There you go. <laughs> and you can find them out uh, later in the on future. in the future. So thanks for tuning in, folks. Uh, and uh, yeah, and thank you again, Charday. Thanks. The Digital Cancer Twin podcast is a result of a grant distributed by the New Frontiers and Research Fund of the Tri-Councils of Canada and recorded on Queen's University campus. We want to formally acknowledge that Queen's University is situated on the unceded territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe. We are grateful to be able to live, learn, and play on these lands.